Father, again, we're so thankful for your mercy and grace, your sovereignty, your providence, your distinguishing particular love that found us out from various places and brought us together this place and this point in life and time and history. May we give you the glory. May we consider our Savior, for he said it is finished. And our responsibility is to believe it and to preach that which he has done. We glory in him. And pray that you might strengthen us now to be amazed at what the apostles were amazed at. A resurrected Lord. Strengthen us now to finish well here this hour and the rest of our life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. How many references to the cross of Christ can you find preached by the apostles in the book of Acts? Not many. Look in chapter 13. Now they preached historically. You put him to death. God raised him from the dead. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 13 and 14. They preached the historical death of Christ. But of course the full implications of the death of Christ were uh, gradually revealed to them more and more. But here in Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul says this. Verse 13, verse, well, let's look at his message. It says, verse 28, Acts 13, verse 28, And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Judea, the very ones who are now his witnesses. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled his promise to our children, and that he has raised up Jesus. Just as also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten thee. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the sure and certain mercies of David. And again, verse 35, he says in another psalm, you'll not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So he said, now for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And what is the implication? Look at verse 38. Therefore, on account of his death and resurrection, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him... Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. That is their preaching of the gospel, his death and resurrection. But they were 
consumed and gripped with the resurrection because as John said, we, we saw him, we, we touched him, our hands have handled him. Jesus said, touch me and see that I'm not a ghost. Uh, you can imagine the amazement, the excitement, when all of the scriptures begin to come together in their thinking. You know, before they didn't understand, but after the Spirit of God fell, uh, they begin to understand the implications of his death and burial and resurrection. And they preach continually the resurrection. And of course, without the resurrection, Paul says, we are still in our sins. Our faith is worthless. And we are all men most to be pitied. So the resurrection is absolutely essential aspect of the gospel message and with the resurrection is the exaltation of Christ as Lord. They proclaimed Christ as Lord. You understand what we're saying? They were consumed with the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He was raised from the dead and he was exalted. Now this resurrection did several things and proved several things we can show from the scriptures. And what are those particular things? Listen carefully. Number one, he was publicly declared to be the Son of God. Romans chapter 1. He was declared formally and officially to be the Son of God. Paul is talking about the gospel. My gospel, he says. Romans chapter 1. You are familiar with the verse. Notice what he says. Paul, he identifies himself. He is a bond servant of Christ. He's set apart, dedicated, consecrated as an apostle, a messenger, set apart. You see that idea of separation, consecration, set apart for the gospel of God. Now this gospel, he said, is promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. It is something that the Old Testament testifies of. And this gospel is concerning his son. Uh, he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now that is formally through his, uh, his adoptive earthly father, Joseph. You understand what we're saying. Mary wasn't a descendant of David. Joseph was. But here nonetheless, he still declared to be a descendant of David. But notice verse 4. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The first thing the resurrection did was publicly declare him uh, to be the Son of God, the promised Messiah who has fulfilled the task that God had given him to fulfill. The resurrection was a public declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. So remember that first of all. Second of all, the resurrection was a vindication, or let's call it a justification of Christ. Write this verse down. First Timothy, is it not? First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. By common confession, there was an early primitive confession of truth concerning Christ in the early church. Now, you know, in the early church, when the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, Paul was talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been given. 
So he says here in verse 16 of chapter 3, by common confession, that is, this is something that the church believes and has written down and now publicly in the unity of heart and conviction confess, great is the mystery of godliness. And the mystery of godliness is the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom by the gospel. And that kingdom is made up not just of Jews, but of Gentiles. This is the mystery of godliness. And it says he was revealed in the flesh, that is, his human nature. He was vindicated. That's the idea of he was justified in the spirit. That is, the resurrection justified Christ. Now, what did that mean? He wasn't a sinner that needed pardon from his sins. Justification was a declaration of his righteousness. You understand what we're saying? So when he was raised from the dead, it was a public declaration that he was fully righteous and that all that God required, he had supplied. He was vindicated. He was declared to be not only the son of God, he was declared to be righteous. That's what the resurrection did. And also, thirdly, it indicated the offering was accepted. The offering was accepted. Uh, he said, it is finished. And God's wrath was satisfied. It says he offered himself without blemish to God. And notice Ephesians and chapter 5 very quickly. We're talking about uh, his offering being accepted. Uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Now listen carefully. The, 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 uh, the basis of the exhortations toward practical living in the church is what we call Christocentric. Gospel-centered and Christocentric. Again and again, the reference as to how we ought to walk, live, whether it's love our wife, care for our children, submit to the authority or whatever it may be, is what? It's turning us back to the Savior. What is the humility of mind and unity we need to have one toward another? Paul in Philippians 2 brings us to the Savior. We have a Christocentric, God-centered, gospel-based ethic to all of the moral imperatives in the New Testament and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, indirectly indicating that it was pleasing to God and it was acceptable to God. One other verse, Hebrews chapter 9, the whole of Hebrews is talking about the sufficiency and the finality and the acceptability of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Notice chapter 9 and verse 14, comparing the blood of Christ to the temporary sacrificial blood of bulls and goats, chapter 9 and verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God.
And the, the, the chapter 9 goes on to indicate uh, that he did, verse 24, not just enter a holy place made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven himself to appear in the presence of God. He didn't offer himself up often as the high priest did, verse 25, who enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would need to have suffered since the salvation, excuse me, foundation of the world. Now, at the consummation of the ages, he had been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hear me carefully. The resurrection declared him to be the Son of God, declared him to be righteous, and indicated that his sacrifice was finished and fully accepted by the Father. Hear me carefully. The resurrection also is an aspect of the basis of our justification. Uh, write this verse down very quickly. Romans, I believe, and chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. As Paul is unfolding the uh, testimony of Abraham who lived by faith, not by works, and that those that uh, believe Christ and trust Christ are children of Abraham. Now listen carefully. What's the theme of the book of Romans? Now, Romans is one of the most magnificent pieces of literature that's ever been written. And people have different ideas about the theme and purpose of Romans. Our Presbyterian brethren have it divided up in three parts, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And that's good, and we believe that. Uh, there's guilt, chapters 1 to 3. There's grace, uh, 3 to uh, 11. And there's gratitude from that point on. Uh, uh, Reformed Baptists call it a uh, uh, righteousness is the theme of the book of Romans. That is... Uh, Righteousness required, chapters 1 to 3. Righteousness provided, uh, 3 to 4. Uh, righteousness received, uh, chapter 5. Righteousness demonstrated, 6 to 8. Righteousness practiced, 12 to the end. That's good and that's accurate. But listen carefully. When you want to determine uh, the purpose of a book, you've got to understand the historical context. Paul is writing a book to a real church. And they've got issues in the church. And if you study the background of the book of Romans, there are several issues in the church. Now, Paul tells us he wants to go to Spain. You remember that in the last part of the book. And he, he wants the Roman church to help him on the way to Spain. But he realizes that the Roman church has got some problems that may hinder the progress of the gospel in helping him on the way to Spain. And the problems are basically twofold. One is a, uh, is a, a theological problem. There are some Judaizers that have come in and they have accused Paul of uh, preaching against the law and being antinomian. As we are uh, falsely accused, he said in chapter 5, uh, and, and as he said uh, in Romans chapter 6, relative to the fact that shall we go on sinning that grace may increase, he's speaking against those that accused him of teaching a wrong gospel. Then you had a, a unity problem, a unity problem between Jews, uh, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. You remember Priscilla and Aquila had been put out of Rome when Claudius the emperor, I believe in about 54, expelled the Jews on account of some conflict. 
Four years later, these Jewish believers returned and there began to be a conflict between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. So Paul realized in the Roman church there was some theological confusion and there was a lack of unity. And Paul knew if there's theological confusion and a lack of unity, then the purposes of God regarding the advancement of the gospel would not possibly proceed. Now that tells us something. When you've got disunity in a church and when you've got confusion regarding the gospel, the possibilities of the prosperity and progress of the gospel are diminished. And all through the book, if you read out and follow these words, Paul mentioning again and again, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile are both condemned. Jew and Gentile are both children of Adam. Uh, excuse me, as children of Abraham. Uh, Jew and Gentile are both in Adam. And on and on and on. And how does chapter 9 through 12, uh, 9 to 11, fit into Paul's purpose? He's explaining and trying to answer the Jewish legalist in regards to their accusation of him uh, concerning his denial of the law of God. Hear me carefully. What is Paul doing in writing Romans to a real church? He's trying to tell them that there is equality and unity between Jew and Gentile and the gospel. I think that's one of his main points in Romans uh, because he's dealing with a real problem. Now all the other things are true, guilt, grace, and gratitude, righteousness, 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 righteousness. His theme is the gospel and it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, what does he say, to the Jew and to the Greek. And he takes off on developing that theme that there is unity ought to be between Jew and Gentile. There is equality between Jew and Gentile. And until we come to understand that rooted in the gospel, then the gospel is not going to progress. That's some of the historical background. But theologians have been discussing for years what is the purpose of Romans. Now, that's my two bits for what it's worth. Uh, in regards to my general understanding of what Romans is about. You see what I'm saying? But uh, Paul didn't sit down to write. He said, all right, I'm going to write my theological treatises here. He's writing to a real church to deal with real issues. And in doing that, he is writing about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel that produces equality and unity among Jew and Gentile and produces also holiness and sanctification. And with that unity and with that theological understanding, the gospel can advance to Spain. Amen. I don't know how we got off on that. I'm... Romans 4. What was it? That's what it was. Justification, Romans 4. Now, verse 23. Now, for his sake only was it written, not only for his sake that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Notice verse 25. He was delivered up over because of our transgressions and was raised because of or the view toward, or on account of, 
or being absolutely necessary for our justification. How is the resurrection necessary for justification? Christ is vindicated himself and justified, declared righteous, and his sacrifice has been accepted. So with his sacrifice accepted and with his righteous life vindicated, we can be justified, which is pardoned from the guilt of sin and declared to be righteous. You understand what we're saying. It is the basis of our justification and that's also the basis of our sanctification. It's the basis of our sanctification. Uh, Romans in chapter 8 and verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so we see here that Paul directly links the resurrection of Christ to our sanctification. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead has now been imparted to us and we are able ourselves to be raised from the dead. In fact, we died with him and we were raised with him and now we are exalted with him uh, in our representative. We're on earth, he's in heaven, but God sees us in our representative as being in him. And the whole wonderful truth of union with Christ is a wonderful and glorious reality. Hear me carefully, and obviously the resurrection is a source of and the basis for our final glorification. Our final glorification. That is, we are presently raised and seated with him in the heavenlies. And one day we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he truly is. Can you think of any verse that relates the resurrection of Christ to future glory? Well, if you find it, you let us know. And our job is to search the scriptures to see whether these things be so. Hear me carefully. He's raised from the dead. And not only that, they declared again and again, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And he says this, uh, Acts chapter 2 and 4, that Christ is now on David's throne. Now on David's throne. Not just in the future in a millennium, but he's now on David's throne, exalted as the son of David. And that's the testimony of Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 13 in the preaching of the apostles. He's been exalted to the right hand of God and he is seated upon David's throne is basically what he's saying. Very quickly look in the book of Acts in chapter 2. Now we're not getting into any discussions about what your conviction is about different views on the future. But we are saying that the apostles seem to think and believe that Christ was presently exalted on the throne that was promised to David, verse 29 of Acts 2, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, 
and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promise of the Spirit he poured forth this which you have, for it was not David, verse 34, that ascended to heaven, but he himself, that is, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. Therefore, verse 36, that all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. The message, well, you have crucified your own promised Messiah. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the soul and cried out, what must we do to be saved? And he said, verse 38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children. And as many as the Lord has called to himself. Now listen carefully. And I don't want to get off on a tangent here. Do we baptize babies? Yes. We baptize spiritual babies. If you properly interpret this passage, you've got to ask two questions. What is the promise? And how is it applied? It's a matter of interpreting the Word of God. What is the promise? And how is it applied? Previous context tells us what in verse 33 is the promise. What is the promise in verse 33? The, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, how is the Holy Spirit conferred? Let's let Paul interpret himself, told to the book of Galatians, very quickly. Galatians and chapter 2, I believe. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 13, excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And look carefully at verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit, how? By faith. The promise of the Spirit is not automatically conferred upon those that are born into a Christian family and are thus baptized. Listen carefully. The New Testament antitype of Old Testament circumcision is not baptism. It is the circumcision of the heart. It is the new birth. 
and we baptized those that had been circumcised of heart and had been born not into a physical family, but had been born again into a spiritual family. You understand what we're saying? I know our Presbyterian brethren don't agree with this, but I'm assuming most of us are Baptists in here. But hear me carefully. He said that you will receive the promise of this. This promise is for you and your children. It is not automatically conferred upon those uh, that are baptized as children. It is spiritually conferred upon those that have been circumcised in their heart by the new birth. We baptize those that have been circumcised in their heart and they receive the promise of the Spirit not by physical birth into a covenant family, but by spiritual birth into the family of God. So we baptize spiritual babies, if you will, who have been circumcised of heart. And so the promise is not automatically conferred by physical birth. It is given the Spirit by faith to those that have been circumcised of heart, and those are the ones we baptize. But the point is this. Peter is preaching that the promise of sitting David upon the throne has now been fulfilled in David's son, and it's very clear by direct inference that Peter is teaching that Christ now occupies at the right hand of God, the throne that was promised to David. And that one day the full expression of that kingdom will be visibly, physically, powerfully demonstrated. Now the kingdom is spiritual, inward, hidden, slowly growing. That's the analogies Jesus uses of the kingdom of God. Any questions relative to here? And now we're just, did we find a verse here? I'm sure there's one somewhere. If you find it, send me an email. <laughs> Any questions upon the significance of the resurrection? Now look, if this didn't happen, we've had it. And we have all men most to be pitied, somebody said. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, we're still in our sins and our faith is worthless. So we believe in a righteous life, a bloody cross, and an empty tomb, as our brother continues to remind us, as the basis, and we believe in an exalted throne. So part of the gospel message is that Jesus is now Lord. God highly exalted him, gave him a name that is above every name, and that every name should declare that what? Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God is establishing his kingdom by the exaltation of his son through the gospel. So I know mostly as Baptists we would probably say that we should immerse the new believer mm -hmm. in the water. But are there circumstances where we could sprinkle it more? Ideally we want to immerse because that picture is seemingly our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. But in some circumstances, that may not be possible. And so, yes, yeah, sprinkling, dumping, pouring, anything that gets the idea of a physical expression, uh, listen carefully, 
uh, Paul, Peter said, baptism now saves you. And everybody stops there in the verse. <laughs> but what does the rest of the verse say? Not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. It's not the physical act. But it's an appeal to God for a good, clear conscience through Jesus Christ. That's saving faith. And we baptize those that have been born again into the family of God. So ideally, it ought to be immersion. In some circumstances, that may not be the case. Ideally, the Lord's Supper is to be, t when you all gather together, wait for one another. It is a corporate expression of our unity and our identification again with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Same way with the baptism. And the Lord's Supper and the baptism is a means of grace, public means of grace, that is an encouragement to believers. It's like a spiritual shot in the arm, if you will, if you partake of the Lord's Supper in a proper manner, and especially as you see new believers get baptized. Ideally, it ought to be in person. Uh, only under the rarest circumstances ought you try to do something to a shut-in or to a sick person or something of that nature. But I don't believe that you ought to go a long period of time in celebrating the Lord's Supper, or I don't know how you're going to do baptism. You get somebody to bring a video camera in somebody's house in their bathtub or something of that nature. But ideally, this is all to be public. And if that's the case, it may be necessary to delay for a season. But again, we've talked about a long season here with COVID. And so that's a challenging question, uh, but I think generally speaking, we need to avoid any consistent pattern of regularly producing or giving baptisms of the Lord's Supper over video or Zoom. <laughs> You got to hang in there 20 more minutes now. It looked like some of you thought the end was near. <laughs> but don't know. There's more. Now, everybody uses the word gospel. We got gospel marriages. We got gospel business. We got to live the gospel. And it once is a word that may be true. That is, we are to imitate the sacrificial expression that the gospel accomplished in our family. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Uh, that is uh, an implication of the gospel. But uh, the word is thrown around too lightly and too tritely. Listen carefully. When we do that sometime, we lose the power and influence of the gospel the gospel is something that has already happened. It is finished. It is over 2,000 years ago. Our job is to proclaim it. Not necessarily just to, quote, live it. <coughs> he lived the gospel. He died the gospel. He rose from the dead to vindicate and justify us. <coughs> he did the living of the gospel. We do the preaching of the gospel. Now, yes... Humble yourself and serve one another just like Christ humbled himself and served you. So there's a Christocentric, a Christ-centered emphasis to our ethic, our behavior. You understand what we're saying? That we're to do things as Christ did. 
but none of the things we do can anyway reduplicate or add to what is already finished. Our job is to proclaim historically what happened. And when you do that, God has promised in many cases something is going to happen. If you tell people that there's only one righteousness that God has required that we cannot fulfill, and it was done by this Jesus 2,000 years ago, and if you tell them that nothing you can do, you can bathe in the river for a thousand years, you can offer up sacrifices, you can flagellate your body, you can pray to Allah, your good works will not save you. There's one God, righteous judge, his standard is perfection. And only one person could fulfill it. And you've got to give up your own works. And you've got to believe on that person. Listen carefully. It's not our point to uh, necessarily argue, inappropriately defend, or insist with philosophical arguments or persuasive words of wisdom. We've got to try to impress people. Paul said, when I was among you, I didn't use persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't use the philosophies of man. Uh, Greeks search for wisdom, and the Jews, uh, uh, they want to promise Messiah. He said, we preach Christ and Him crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. Listen carefully. Our job is to lay it out there. <coughs> Spurgeon said, it's a lion. It's a lion, like a tiger. You just let it loose and see what happens. Now, you follow that proclamation because it says, with many other words, he kept exhorting them. So the preaching of what happened and what they must do, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit he didn't just say, all right, let's shut it down, let's go to the house. It said, with many other words, he kept exhorting them. So our preaching must not just be the communication of the historical fact, but the powerful implication and application of that reality to the lives of people where they are. And he kept on exhorting them to their responsibility. Be saved or save yourself from this perverted and wicked generation. He put the weight of the burden and responsibility on them. Not that you got to sit around and passively wait until God may be pleased out of heaven to cause you to be born again because you can't do anything unless that happens. Again, hear me. We preach to men's responsibility and leave the consequences to God. Any questions? Sir, first John three three two. First John three two? Yeah. What does it say? Uh, we will be like him and mm. we will see him mm. as he is. So what does it mean? We will be like him and is it really possible to know him completely in all eternity as he is. Uh, yes, that is that we will not become deity, but we will be. We have been created in the image of uh, Him who who created us in wisdom and righteousness. We have received, Peter said, the divine nature. 
but that's by the presence of the Holy Spirit within our own uh, person. That doesn't mean we become deity. And when we get to heaven, we will not become deity. We will be glorified saints and we will be like him in that we will be morally pure and we'll be exalted with him, if you will, and we'll be reigning with him. And so it doesn't have anything to do with we will be deity. We will be godlike. It has to do with our separation totally from sin and our exaltation to a wonderful position. You see what I'm saying? That seems to me to be the, the, the emphasis. Any other question? Well, we better shut her down. We had some more things to say, but we'll leave that to another time, perhaps if we meet together again this side of glory. <laughs> Have I mentioned those two things that I consider the most important things? I hope you remember. I'm going to go home and try to grow in Christ-like grace. And my wife will sure tell me when that's not happening. And I'm going to try to deepen in my understanding of the truth of God. Men, live in that book. Live on your knees. Live on your knees. Live in that book. And God will take care of the rest. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that he is at your right hand. We believe it. There's a man in heaven that bears human nature, bears in his own body the marks of men. But we glory in the slain lamb and rejoice for all eternity that he's presently exalted. Lord, we believe it. We believe it, and we want to believe it more than ever. And we want to stake our life and soul upon these realities. And we want to live as if there is an eternity. We want to live under your eye. We want to walk with you in righteousness. We want to honor and please you in all our behavior. Bless my dear brothers and sisters with your presence and your power. Meet them in secret and deepen them in the knowledge of the truth that we might grow into the image of our Savior and be used for his kingdom. Oh, anoint them and fill them and empower them afresh and repeatedly with the influence of the Holy Spirit that they might be useful for your kingdom <coughs> in faith, trusting you for the fruit. So we commit our way to you, Lord, and as we go our separate ways, we're reminded that one day we shall be gathered together again, and perhaps we shall remember these days, and we shall talk about the glory of our Savior, because we shall be in his presence. Until then, though we do not see him, we love him, and we rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. Now assist us and strengthen us to press on, we ask, in Christ's name, amen. amen.